Welcome to the March edition of the BDB podcast. This is Bad Dog Books. I am your host, Alex Vance, seated here in the cramped and musty confines of the most advanced and well-equipped recording facilities a very small amount of money can buy, namely the back room of Mr. Chung's beauty parlour and bakery and recording studio. While the actual recording room is thoroughly soundproofed, Mr. Chung has recently divided it into two unequal compartments, and that division, unfortunately, isn't soundproof. The droning you hear in the background is the sound of the Black Death Gentlemen's Choir, who are rehearsing either Giuseppe Verdi's opera Rigoletto or Fighting. Considering that I saw the gentlemen of the Black Death Choir carrying a crate of either beer or bourbon each as they were entering their compartment, I actually suspect they're somehow doing both. I've tried fiddling with the knobs in front of me in order to minimise the interference in the recording of this splendid BDB podcast with mixed results. The entire bank to my left appears to be electrified, judging by the burnt corpses of mice and lice and, for some bizarre reason, something that looks like a head of lettuce. The knobs and buttons on the right-hand side of the mixing panel appear safer, although the master volume knob only seems to dim the single light bulb over my head and again lowers my chair. The bass controls make my microphone glow in different colours, and I'm too scared to try the treble controls since someone etched the word radioactive in the panel under them. So we're stuck with the quality, if such it can be called, that we now endure. Let us proceed. In February's episode, I waxed prosaic about the new BDB releases, Fang Volume 1, Volume 2, and the new Fang Presents novel, Everybody Loves Luther, and the fact that they were available through Furnation's online store as well as through the Bad Dog bookstore itself. The fact that I'm recording this in Mr. Chang's beauty parlour and bakery and recording studio attests to the fact that we at Bad Dog Books are not exactly swimming in gold and other forms of filthy lucre. Not yet, but we're getting there. We're still toiling away on Fang Volume 3 and 4. 3 is the last of the initial run of homoerotica volumes, this one focusing on fantasy. You know, Dungeons and Dragons and Damsels in Distress, except the damsels aren't damsels but strapping young gentlemen. This volume has actually been in development for a very long time, since it was during the initial editing of this volume that I was struck with the repetitive strain injury that nearly caused me to abandon, can you imagine, to abandon Fang, until the inimitable Ben Goodrich bullied me into hiring him. It's really going to be a screamer, this one. White Yote submitted his work to, and has been selected for, every single volume of Fang so far, and his story for Fang Volume 3 in particular showcases the breadth of his range. Coming of Age, as the story is called, follows the trial of a wolf named Ario, who is ousted from his tribe and, as he tries to survive in the wilderness long enough to earn his tribe's trust, finds that hunter and prey are not exactly fixed relationships. K.M. Hirosaki, whose work I have admired since I read one of his Blue Forest stories on Yifstar.com, looks at the loneliness of a wizard's life, the pain of the desires he harbours and the lengths to which desperation can drive a man. I really ought to shut up about it for now. I'm really, really, really pleased with the book, and I will happily sing its praises when it's ready for prime time. Meanwhile, Ben thinks he can one-up me by having Fang Volume 4 finished before I'm done with Volume 3. He's been working hard on this, and with good reason. Volume 4 is our first venture into non-erotic material. Long were our discussions as to how this should be handled, whether we should launch a separate product line for non-erotic works... Our conclusion was that our readers, that's you, puppies, are intelligent enough to see what each volume is about and make their own decisions about which of them interests them. Volume 4 covered science fiction and should be available at Anthrocon this summer. Exciting! Very, very exciting. There will be more about it in the next episode. Because we really, really want you to buy it. 
If only so I can record this wonderful podcast in a location where I'm less at risk of electrocution and where there isn't a horde of owls staring at me from that corner over there. Lord, those owls freak me out. And for the writers among you, there's still time. Fang Volume 5 is still accepting submissions up until April 14th. Here's an interesting twist, though. Usually, we receive 90% of our submissions in the 48 hours around the deadline date. In this case, April 14th, mark your calendars. But we've actually received a surprising number of submissions already. If these alone constitute the 10%, and there are another nine times as many still to come, Ben has his work cut out for him. That said, if you want your story to receive all the consideration it deserves, rather than being hurriedly sifted through as Ben tries to meet my really quite unreasonable deadlines, submit your story early. Get to work now. The theme is games, and aside from the stricture that it should be non-erotic and teen-rated, there really isn't a limit to what you can submit. This is actually an unprecedented degree of freedom afforded to the authors. Previous volumes always clearly defined a genre, and I, for my part, thought that was a very good way to do things. But Ben, who is now the boss of Fang, got me really drunk and somehow convinced me to go ahead with his wacky, newfangled idea of using themes to give authors greater freedom and challenges and all that bollocks. But you know what? You are not alone this time. Yes, you, the nascent writer who's trembling at the thought of opening his word processor, you are going to get some help from the only people in the world who can give you advice on how to impress the literary titans of bad dog books, namely us. Stay tuned for a brand new segment in the BDB podcast titled Bad Dog Boot Camp. But first the story. Ha. The story is the third part of The Walking Mountain, which was written by Ben Goodridge, performed by my ever-modest self, and which was first published in the pocket edition of Fang Volume 2 last month. Because this story didn't appear in the original trade paperback edition of Volume 2, that meant a lot of people were gypped, and to ease their suffering, we decided we'd release the entire story as a radio play. In last month's thrilling episode, which you absolutely need to listen to before continuing, unfortunately, so yes, go back, download the other episode, get it done, we were introduced to Lord Banyan a private detective in a slightly different London of 1899. His business partner, Billy, who was a nearly indestructible werewolf, and Billy's assistant, Stocky, who was once a greater arcana, a horror from beyond time and space, and now a rather dim but perfectly cheerful, oily, black werewolf thing. This trio were investigating a panicked telegram from one Benchley, an old-school chum of Banyan's, and as they drove the company automobile into the English countryside, they discovered a towering mechanical monstrosity that had been more or less harmlessly traipsing through the woods. While investigating the crater the thing had made when it had crashed on Earth the previous night, the three-legged thing reappeared and after smacking poor Billy around a bit, caught Banyan, Billy, Stocky and Benchley in a mysterious force and teleported them away. Let's see what happens next. So far as I know, I never lost consciousness, yet the sensation was similar. One moment I was in one place, the next I was in another, with no explanation forthcoming as to the change of states. The room was warm and featureless, and about knee-deep in mud, and it was in this that I was still struggling as if trying to escape its clutches. I wound up scrambling across the floor and supporting myself warily against the wall, drawing great huge gasps of the rich, dizzying air. Words floated in, dulcet and androgynous, as if played on a melodeon. They tickled me. Inside and out, and I found it difficult not to grin. Wherever I was, I was in no immediate danger, and the first thing I heard from my hosts was an apology, 
which went a long way towards comforting my jangled nerves. "'I am so sorry for any discomfort I might have caused,' said the dulcet voice. "'I was troubled that I might have hurt you, and I am pleased to see that you are well. Don't be frightened.' Frightened is not a word I would have used to describe my sensations at that moment. I was, of course, apprehensive. It was not lost on me that the walls were made up of the same material as the walking mountain, and I felt that I had achieved my goal of finding a way into its unbreakable hull, though certainly my entrance had been facilitated by the inhabitants. This small, warm room had a wide-open door, and I headed towards it, intent on greeting and perhaps thanking for my life, my hosts. Instead, I struck against nothing with a melodious bong and fell splat into the mud again. A very familiar voice said, I already tried, boss. We don't exactly have the run of the place. I leaned against the flexible nothing that barricaded the door into a wide round room surrounded by cells very similar to mine. Placing myself at twelve on the clock, I gathered that the entrance to my gilded prison was at six, and Billy was in the cell at three, slimed with mud, and leaning gamely against the air. I saw Benchley and Stocky in other cells, also awash in mud, and I wondered what the mud was in aid of. "'Are any of us hurt?' called Benchley. "'Are we all right?' "'I'm in one piece,' I said. "'I'm uh, still in several, but they're all joining up in the middle,' said Billy. "'Stocky, say something.' "'Hello, master.' "'That'll do.' "'I'm on my way up now,' said the host. "'Again, I implore you, don't be frightened. "'I wouldn't have hurt you for anything. "'I'm going to step into the room now. "'I only want to talk.' "'The being that stepped into the room held no horror "'for one regularly exposed to the presence of demons "'and other forces of nature, "'though I did take a moment to marvel "'at the wonderful shapes life takes. "'Our host stood on three legs, much like his machine. "'He had three arms, each with a long hand ending in three fingers, "'and three feet with three long toes.' He looked around at all of us, with three eyes set into a triangular head, with a tuft of yellowish hair at the top. His skin was shiny, scaly and iridescent, like the skin of a snake. He was a rather handsome being, all things considered, with a long, lithe, flexible body dressed in what looked like silvery long underwear. The object at his side had the rough shape of a pistol, except it had a fat body and no aperture at the front. What struck me was that our host was even more nervous than he expected us to be. Not that he was terrified of us, per se, just of what our reaction might have been, had we not had open minds and curious hearts. "'I am Dodo,' he said. "'I managed to bring you in here before you were hurt.' He looked anxiously around at his captive audience. "'You aren't hurt, are you? The furry one took some terrible blows before I could transport him in.' "'I'm fine,' said Billy. "'Takes a lot to damage me permanently.' "'I'm Lord Planchenet Banyan of London.' I said. I'm pleased to make your acquaintance, though I must admit that the circumstances have me confused. This is Billy, my business partner and good friend. We were summoned to investigate this machine of yours. These are Stocky, Billy's assistant, and Benchley, a wizard. Dodo looked as sheepish as a creature from another planet could look. I haven't hurt anyone, have I? Only I think I stepped on a house. That would be mine, said Benchley tightly. Dodo looked sheepish again. I caught Billy trying to get my attention and looked over at him. Hey, boss, he said. We're, uh, we're naked. I looked down. Indeed, the transport had transported us entirely out of our clothes. All I wore was half an inch of black British mud from head to toe. I didn't want to transport you up here with any possessions, said Dodo. That's how I set the filters. I didn't want to take a chance that you'd bring a weapon or something on board. I didn't know what the tripod self-defense mechanism might do. 
You didn't know? I leaned against the air again and tilted my head at my host. You... you're not quite sure how to drive this machine, are you? Dodo bowed his head. You managed to transport the mud, though, didn't you? said Billy, sliming down the fur of his face and chest. I did my best, murmured Dodo. If you want clothes, I can design some for you. Thank you, I said. That would be most satisfactory. Also, if you could do something about... about... about all this mud. Dodo's eyes widened with curiosity. You don't like the mud? I transported it with you because I thought you needed it to survive. No, I said, tight-lipped, while Billy tried not to giggle. I'm not a mud skipper. I function best in dry clothes with a nice cup of tea in one hand. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, said Dodo hurriedly. He pulled the pistol from his pocket, adjusted something on it, aimed it at me, and fired. Something warm flowed from what would have been its muzzle, straight through the solid air, and suddenly it was raining in my chamber. The water was warm and cleansing, and had a hint of soap in it, with a sweet scent, and I found that it made me clean very effectively. The mud swirled away through the drainage system. Across the round room, Billy was also getting a vigorous shower, though with his fur, this took more time. After the water, the rooms grew hot, and warm air blew in from the doorways. It only took a few seconds to dry, and then the room was full of red, sparkly light. I was clean and dry when what looked like a metal boiler suit appeared hanging on one wall. I took it down. It was a very soft, very fine fabric, like silk or damask, yet sturdy as iron and sparkling like the surface of a pond. It was a one-piece, and I struggled into it, amazed at how well it fit. The seam closed itself and turned invisible. Is that more comfortable? said Dodo, and I nodded. Much, I said, very pleased. He pressed a button on his pistol, and I felt warm air move past me. The doors were open. I feel like an aluminium can, said Benchley, tugging at his sleeves, though there was no way for his costume to be ill-fitting. Remind me not to wear this in the sunlight if I don't want my associates blinded. Billy padded over to Dodo and sniffed at him. His tail wagged. Are you frightened? he said, showing lots of teeth. Mm, a little, said Dodo. You smell frightened. Dodo was looking around at us. Three different species, he said. But all intelligent, bipedal, binocular, binaural. What a coincidence for this world. I'm not sure I understand, I said. You said you were having trouble guiding this machine. Did you not build it? Dodo's eyes widened, apparently a universal expression of surprise. Oh, no, no, by the stars, no. I, I well, I apprehended it, uh, uh, borrowed it. You stole it, said Billy, grinning as if he had a mouthful of mints. Oh, please, Dodo implored Billy almost desperately. Please don't take me back. They'll kill me if I go back. There's a war going on. Whole world's devastated. I just had to get away. That's all. So I took one of the tripods. I doubt they even noticed it was missing. Relax, my friend, I said. We couldn't send you home even if we wanted to. Nevertheless, it might not be a bad idea if you settled somewhere. It won't be safe for you to blunder about the English countryside in a war machine. Perhaps you'll be welcome here on Earth, said Billy. I wouldn't trust your tripod in the paws of these... He gestured in my direction. Clumsy warriors, though. You'd be an asset at Cambridge, said Benchley, or any scientific institute. Then we're agreed, I said, though a little tightly. We shall ask Parliament to allow Dodo to stay, but we must ask Dodo to return the tripod from whence it came. Upon arriving in the chamber that served as the control centre for the war machine, I immediately saw what one of Dodo's problems must have been. 
The place was very large and clearly constructed for a crew of at least three for guidance alone. The controls were arranged on triangular supports and triangular panels showed images of the view below, moving pictures like those that appear in a Kessler mirror or cauldron reflection. I think Benchley might have the solution to your piloting problem, said Billy. He held his paws together, then drew them apart. Benchley's wand was between them, and he offered it to the wizard. What's that? said Dodo. My wand, said Benchley. Think of it as a focusing device. It channels power, and it had a very strange effect on your machine. Is that the little monster that took over my guidance systems before? said Dodo. Let me see it. Benchley shrugged and handed it over. Dodo examined it stupidly for a moment, like a monkey trying to figure out how to get into a banana. This is just a nine-unit carbonaceous steel rod with a magnet stuck on the end of it, he said. I can't think how it jammed my guidance systems. Water pooled in the crash site where your vehicle landed, I said. When the wand touched the water, it summoned the machine. It's also, said Billy, snatching the wand away from Dodo, Benchley's. He handed the wand politely to Benchley. What do you think? Well, I can give it a try, said Benchley. Where do you want it? Billy folded his arms. London, he said. Figure we walk it right up the Thames. That should get the attention of the necessary authorities. And then some, I said. Benchley rolled up his sleeves, lifted his wand, and swept it over the blinking control panels. A deep rumble started up under our feet, and the machine lifted a leg and started to walk. How is this possible? said Dodo, walking all the way around Benchley. He isn't even touching the equipment. Well, it's just a mechanical device like any mechanical device, really, said Billy. Benchley doesn't have to know every little thing about how it works in order to make it move. This is amazing, said Dodo, and the ride is so smooth and swift. You found driving difficult, but you have three paws, said Billy. It's not enough for all this equipment. Besides, I lack the expertise of the master pilots of my people. How much training did you get? Well, licensing and clearance for tripod command generally takes about 1140 hours, said Dodo, his translation device obviously finding our units of time and mathematics no challenge. And you're licensed, I said. Uh, no, he admitted. I've only had four hours training. The tripod stopped so that Benchley could join us in staring at him. I'd never even been inside a tripod before I appropriated this one, said Dodo. I just watched a few film strips. We're moving much more smoothly now. Billy nudged me. You're helping for a royal audience, aren't you? And why not? I said. Our new friend is not a demon, but a visitor from another planet. His case should be put before the proper authorities, and I doubt the Queen of England would listen to us if we just marched straight into Buckingham Palace and said that we were hosting an otherworldly visitor who wanted to talk to an authority figure. Now, the tripod is large, impressive, and, if we can keep from stepping on anything expensive, relatively harmless. Already, in under a minute, an inexperienced pilot has covered a mile. And contributed mightily to rural deforestation, said Billy. Well, it's all farmland from here to the sea, I said. Benchley, get a fix on east and travel as much across open space as you can. If we can avoid communities and settlements, we should reach the ocean in a few minutes. The height of the tripod was more than a match for the sea. The going was slower in the water, though, and Benchley was growing fatigued. He was sweating quite a lot and his face was growing red. Finally, he lowered the wand and handed it to Billy. Billy would not last as long as pilot as Benchley did for two reasons. One, most of Billy's magic went into keeping him alive and holding him together no matter what, leaving him with much less magic for casting than a skilled wizard. Two, 
It wasn't his wand, and he lacked an affinity with the magic Benchley had put into it. His was a clumsy earth magic, and the going was much rougher. What's more, machinery always aggravated him, and the tripod was the paragon of machines. The tripod stumbled forward, plodding nervously along the seabed as Billy stood in the centre of its console room, soaked with sweat, and tried not to faint. Finally, at the mouth of the estuary, he lowered his wand and leaned heavily against a control panel. I can go no farther, he announced, sitting heavily on the floor. He handed the wand back to Benchley and buried his face in his paws. Wake me when we get to Piccadilly. Well done, old chap, I said. Benchley started marching the tripod up the river, but he'd never quite recovered from his previous turn at the controls, and was sweating in just a few minutes. Can you get us to London? I asked. Just about, panted Benchley. Don't expect the express train, though. Try not to step on any bridges or boats, I said. Oh, cheek! Dodo watched the whole thing, bemused. I still don't see how this is possible, he said. There's no way your primitive people could possibly have concocted a machine this complicated, yet with that metal stick in your hand you guide it like an expert. I do have a theory about that, I said. Your ship was out of control when it crashed, correct? Well, yes. Where it landed, it interrupted a stream. Now, water is one of the four magic life elements. The other three being earth, which was richly disturbed by your impact. Fire, the heat from your hull as you passed through the atmosphere. And air, which you must have torn like cloth as you descended. So you damaged the psychic fabric of all four life elements in a single location. Our werewolf Billy detected it before we even reached your crash site. Benchley, your pilot, is highly skilled at manipulating life forces, and the wand is the instrument which he uses to channel them. When that instrument was fully immersed in the initial location of that psychic disturbance, it immediately detected the cause of it. At the same time, there must be some form of equipment on board this ship that recognizes the wand as a detector. We, we have devices that can tell when we are being scanned by another ship, said Dodo, uncertainly. Our computers can detect that kind of power source. I had no idea what a computer was, but I soldiered on. Then that's it. Your ship felt the wand's psychic call and responded to it. In essence, this wand became part of the ship's equipment, and the ship wanted to collect it to be complete. I see, said Dodo, though he clearly didn't. And now you can pilot the tripod just by holding the wand and wishing? Oh, there's so much more to magic than just wishing, my friend, said Billy, still slumped against the wall. Well, as my third father used to say, who cares how it works as long as it works, said Dodo. And only Billy and Benchley can do this. Pretty much, yeah, said Billy. He didn't include Stocky, because for Stocky to give a demonstration would have shortened his lifespan by years. We're reaching London, friends, panted Benchley. I think we're going to have a hell of a reception. Well, wasn't that exciting? Stay tuned for the conclusion. Meanwhile, let's talk business. If you're a writer, or if you're even considering dabbling in the literary arts, and specifically, if you harbor the hope of having your work published in the sleek black paperback marvel known as Fang, then sit up straight, spit out your chewing gum, and get a number two pencil and a legal pad, and take notes. Bad Dog Books presents The Bad Dog Boot Camp. Are we ready? Be quiet. Stop passing notes to each other, and by God, if I catch any of you drawing humorous cartoons, you'll be made to sit in the corner of the classroom with a dunce hat on. Got it? The purpose of the Bad Dog Boot Camp is not to teach you how to write well. There is, in fact, no golden standard when it comes to quality in fiction, much to our chagrin, for several reasons. For one, tastes differ. And that's a fact, ma'am. For another, standards differ. The literary landscape is littered with brilliant minds who flaunt the supposed rules of writing. 
E. E. Cummings, for instance, an earlier 20th century poet and playwright, demanded that his initials and surname all be written in lowercase and insisted that he alone was allowed to do so. He frequently disregarded the rules of spelling, grammar and punctuation. A more modern example is Mark Z. Danielewski, author of the brilliant House of Leaves, who demanded from his publisher that throughout the entire book the word house always be written in blue and minotaur in red, and who exercised a level of control over the layout and topography of his book that is quite simply dizzying. Now, fortunately, bad writing is far more easily categorized. After all, supposed rules may in fact merely be guidelines hotly contested by various scholars of the English language, and literary masters may bite their thumbs at even those rules which all scholars agree on, but you have to be really impressive to earn the right to do so, and there are far safer routes to take. After all, the English language, cobbled together as it is from the myriad languages spoken by the European mercenaries hired by the Romans in their conquest of the British Isles, as well as the language of the natives, is a very good language. It's riddled with inconsistencies, but it's so diverse as to allow the immense range of expression, at least of those concepts which a Western mind can conceive. A good story doesn't need to reinvent the wheel to be told. I find that many young authors try to be innovative and groundbreaking and novel, and I think that's a defense mechanism against criticism. After all, if you're being novel, you can't be compared to anything, and your audience will say, wow, that's really novel, instead of, that's a nice story, but not as good as Stephen King. In my view, it takes some serious balls to be conventional. And in fact, conventional stories tend to impress me the most. Someone who's willing to tread familiar ground and risk being compared to greater forebears shows dedication to his art and, in today's media-saturated world, substantial courage. In that light, this edition of the Bad Dog Boot Camp argues the merits of the conventional, the ordinary, at least in terms of writing technique. Learn some rules and stick to them. As much as we love brilliant prose, reading a brilliant story littered with errors of punctuation, spelling and syntax is a real turn-off, if only because it means a lot of work for the editor to get the damn thing cleaned up. And you know how much we hate to work. Fortunately, learning the right way to do things in order to impress the B2B editors is fairly simple. The first step is to acquire a copy of the little book, not the little black book of furry fiction, which is Fang, but the little book, which is the nickname of The Elements of Style by William Strunk Jr. and E.B. White. In this compact, slim little volume, the authors clearly and sometimes quite humorously illustrate common faults and briskly explain both the correct method and the reasoning behind it. A favorite passage of mine is the entry on redundancy, that you shouldn't be redundant, that if you repeat yourself you're going to bore your audience, etc. The Elements of Style by Strunk and White is BDB's preferred guideline for the English language, North American variant. Following these rules, you will do no wrong as far as BDB's editors are concerned. There are a few concrete guidelines as far as formatting is concerned that aren't covered in Strunk and White, and which are particular to the way BDB works. For instance, BDB's preferred submission method when it comes to stories submitted to Fang is the online word processor Google Docs, available at docs.docs.google.com. In the submissions section on the BDB website, you can find a link to a template for submissions, which contains fields for information that we need before a submission can be considered. It is imperative that you use this. But even then, we are baffled by the sheer variety of formatting styles people submit. Here's a quick rundown of the top five worst offenses, so pay attention. 
Sharpen the number two pencil you've been scribbling with and flip to a new page on your notepad. Ready? We'll start at the bottom. Five. Incorrect quote marks. The standard form in American English for portraying the speech of characters in the story is to surround the quote with double quote marks. Punctuation marks go inside the quotes. Single quote marks are used only for quotes within quotes or when citing written text, such as when your characters read words written on a sign. Now, to list all the possible faults and rules and reasons for those rules would take a very long time indeed. Strunk and White cover the topic quite concisely, so look there and for God's sake, pay attention. Four. Superfluous character styling, and in this case, characters mean letters. Bold, underlined, and capitalized text have no business in a professionally written story. Italics are okay sometimes if used with respect. The most common use for italics is to indicate a character's thoughts. In this case, the character's thought is written in italics, but not surrounded by quote marks of any kind. Depending on the style of your story, it's sometimes also acceptable to use italics to emphasize certain words, either in your own narrative or a character's speech. However, if you commit to this, you do carry a new responsibility. You have to make sure that this emphasis occurs often enough in the story to be recognized as a stylistic choice, but not so often as to appear silly and overeager. Emphasizing text through italics infers stress, which the reader experiences. And as with most tools which cause tension in the reader's experience, you have to know your limits. Too much and the reader ceases to suspend his disbelief because you're heaping on too much pressure, or because it's starting to read like a comic book. A good rule of thumb is to treat emphatic italics as you treat exclamation marks. Even if your characters are having an argument, you wouldn't want to end every single sentence they utter with an exclamation mark, because exclamation marks are for emphasis, and if they're used constantly, they lose meaning. Just as smileys lose meaning in an instant messaging conversation if both speakers end all their sentences with one. So, to summarize, no bold, underlined, or capitalized text and italics only to denote a character's interior monologue or, if used modestly, for emphasis. Three, weird punctuation, and I mean weird punctuation. There are those who believe that two exclamation marks read more loudly than one and three read louder still. There are also those who think that an ellipsis, which is a sequence of three full stops which denote the trailing off of speech or thought, should be more flexible, and that using two full stops instead of three denotes a shorter pause. Others still like to use m-dashes to denote trailing off. The list goes on. We use exclamation marks, question marks, double and single quote marks, colons, semicolons, commas, full stops, dashes, m-dashes... Huh. Sounds like there's a song in there somewhere. Oh, regarding the M-dash, this is a useful, useful little punctuation mark which signifies an interruption, either in the author's narrative or a character's speech. The M-dash is so named because it's longer than a regular dash and typographically it ought to have the exact same width as a lowercase letter M. M-dashes should not be surrounded by spaces. They should literally connect the preceding and following word. Long story short, use punctuation conservatively. Don't go overboard. If you need to use unusual punctuation to express something to the reader, you should instead reshape the sentence to carry more of that meaning. Two, endless streams of adjectives. Now, don't get us wrong. We love, love, love expressive writing, and authors who make the effort to paint rich, vibrant textual tapestries quickly attract our eye. Attention to detail and sensory satisfaction, that's the kind of writing we love. But here at BDB, we adhere to a curious and, to some, cruel policy. 
when we detect excellence, our demands only magnify. So for those among you who take pains to dazzle your audience with the vastness of your imagination, take heed and follow this simple creed. Write with nouns and verbs, not just adjectives. Adjectives are wonderful tools for compressing information into short passages, but it's grating to see an imaginative author spice up his story by applying colorful adjectives to plain words. It's like looking at a beautiful still life which was clearly painted with a fork. It's still beautiful, but it would have been better painted with a brush. He was a burly man in splendid clothes driving a classic car is far less provocative than he was a brute yet dressed like a fashionista and drove a vintage Chevy. Adjectives are by no means barred from the BDB establishment. They are still useful tools. But beware in your own writing because, as you work to expand the depth and splendor of your writing, you may find you rely on them too heavily. Also exercise your vocabulary of nouns and verbs. Now, one, the worst of the worst, spelling and grammar. Yes, I know, it sounds childish, but God fucking damn it, if you're trying to get people to buy your story, make sure it's perfect. Read it fully through at least twice before sending it off, and pay attention. Anything you're unsure about, individual words or whole phrases, even ones that aren't caught by your spell checker, anything that catches your eye, look it up and put yourself at ease. It's all about the first impression. We at BDB try, we really do try, to read submissions thoroughly and objectively, gauging each story by its own merits and, through those, judge the author's skills and weaknesses. But we receive many submissions and must work quickly, and if a story makes a bad impression, that doesn't bode well. The thing that distinguishes semi-professional writers from novices is, besides the extensive writing experience and talent, of course, their willingness to work hard. The writing itself is fun, it's exhilarating, but revising it afterward is just a chore. It's true that this final polish is really the editor's job, but when we see a story that's impressive and polished, we're in heaven. Even if we select that story, the author isn't going to get a free pass, but it does mean that we know we won't have to spend hours spell-checking and correcting minute details on the story, and instead can spend our time coaching the author through more advanced advice. And that gentle listener is in fact the whole reason for this diatribe and the bad dog boot camp in general. We want to help furry writers to be better at what they do. Bang itself exists as much for the benefit of furry authors as for the readers, if not more so. So take all the previous advice in the spirit in which it was given, our helpful advice to better your chances at being selected for Fang. It absolutely has nothing whatsoever, really, to do with the fact that if you folks submit more polished stories, we won't have to spend so much time reworking them, and can spend that time instead swimming in an ocean of vodka, honestly. Now, to recap. Use correct quote marks, don't use any character styling beside italics, don't be creative in your use of punctuation, write with nouns and verbs instead of adjectives, and make sure you've checked and rechecked and re-rechecked your story for spelling and grammar. And this concludes the first installment of the Bad Dog Boot Camp. Wasn't that exciting? Well, gentle listener, as a reward for so studiously taking notes throughout all this, why don't you sit back, relax, and enjoy the fourth and final installment of The Walking Mountain? What will happen next? Let's find out. 
I've guessed correctly that what with our rising from the depths of the Thames and towering over London like a sentinel, we stood a good chance of getting a royal reception. The important thing, I assured Dodo, was that we present an imposing presence without a threatening one. Of course, bumping into London Bridge and sending the centre section crashing into the Thames did not help our image. It was only fortunate that we did no damage to the Tower Bridge. We watched through the monitors as a crowd gathered on the banks of the Thames to gawk and gape and stare and point as the water drained out of the cabin, and we waited patiently until it was safe to disembark. I elected to go first, on the very sensible grounds that a human being would be less likely to be riddled with bullets than a werewolf or a three-armed space creature. Given the opportunity, I could possibly explain. So the transportation beam gathered my atoms from the cabin and sent them down to London Bridge, where the army had already set up a cordon. It was night now, and cool, and the clothes I wore offset the chill nicely. Nevertheless, I somehow doubted they were bulletproof, so when every firearm the army held, aimed at my head, and made ready to fire, I held up my hands and bravely shouted, Don't shoot! I'm from Islington! That, at least, puzzled them considerably, and there was some consternation concerning whether or not I was still a threat. Oi! called someone in the crowd. Is that your machine there? I looked up, way up, at the tripod, as if noticing it for the first time. I was awfully tempted in that moment to claim that I had never seen it before in my life and inquire as to its construction, yet I still had far too many firearms aimed at me for comfort and clarity. It's transport, I said. It's not mine. I'm Lord Blanchinet Banyan. I'm from London. I assure you that this machine is, right now, perfectly safe. None of you are under any threat at all. In direct contradiction of the latter, several feet of London Bridge tumbled into the river and vanished. I addressed London again. I need to speak to the Queen. The Brigadier had had about enough of me. Look, shiny britches, I don't know where you got that thing or what it's doing in the middle of London, but you get it out of the river right now and bog it off back to where it came from. I need to speak to the Queen. It's urgent. It's a matter of political asylum. Within that craft is a visitor from another world, washed up on our planet and seeking refuge on our peaceful shores. A golden glow sparkled about four feet away from the bridge's outer rail. It fully solidified, the glow faded, and Billy plunged out of midair and straight into the river with a yell. The platoon rushed to the edge of the bridge and stared, bemused at the werewolf floundering about in the water, swearing at the top of his lungs. Is... is that him? said the brigadier. No, sir, that's my business partner. He had the misfortune to be involved in this adventure. Lord Banyan, said the brigadier, rubbing his moustache. Seems I've heard your name pop up a few times. You say there's a man from another planet inside that thing? Yes, sir. Very well. I think we can assure you a royal audience. In fact, I don't bloody well see how we can avoid it. If you don't mind waiting here while we arrange things... He reminded me that he was still holding his gun and could make things quite uncomfortable for me were I to refuse. On the riverbank, a half-dozen hale men helped a bedraggled and stinking Billy out of the effluent. When he saw how many guns surrounded him, he sighed, bowed his head, and raised his paws. Gunfire could do him no permanent damage, but he was in no mood to pick six pounds of lead shot out of his chest cavity. Benchley was the next person to appear out of nowhere, in a brief rush of displaced air. He panted slightly, looking bewildered at his surroundings, and then said, very faintly, Oh, who's this? Charles Benchley, D-Mag A, at your service. The occupant apologises for the delay, but it was felt that sending a human envoy ahead would soothe nerves somewhat. He assures that his intention was only to gain the positive attention of London, not spark an interstellar war. If you are ready, then, gentlemen, Dodo will make his appearance. 
the army took a step back at the same time as all their guns came down to aim at us. I looked at Benchley, he looked at me, and we both shrugged. Ready, said Benchley. The air glowed golden, and Dodo appeared in the centre of the circle of soldiers. He had his head down and all three hands up, and was shouting, Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Evidently, his paranoia was healthy, for despite the Queen's own English spoken mellifluently through the harmless lips of the being, there was a loud rattle of guns being primed for firing, and I prayed that the British Army had a steadier set of nerves, as they claimed, for but one stray bullet would have resulted in an avalanche of gunfire that might have reduced us to butchers' leftovers. "'What's that?' whispered the Brigadier. "'Where has it come from?' "'From a world far away. A world at war, Brigadier.' He came to us seeking peace, and brings the tripod as a gift. Well, something like that, anyway, said Dodo. Well, almost something, he grinned mischievously. Well, maybe not. There were so many guns pointed at my head that I had to turn very, very slowly to look Dodo in the eyes. What did you say, sport? You surmised much correctly, earthling, said Dodo. I am, as I said, a deserter from my ranks. I have no taste for fighting, but glory. He licked his lips. Glory is the thing all my people aspire to. I needed a way to win glory without putting myself at risk. I looked around, gripped with a sinking feeling that I'd been had. How does this win you glory? I said, bewildered. What glory can you win here? Well, as you guess, the tripod is fully equipped with devices that detect when it's being scanned. It also comes with the full complement of homing equipment. I crashed on this world deliberately, you see. I had to inflict just enough damage on the tripod to activate its distress beacons without making it unusable. The brigadier lifted his gun and aimed it very pointedly at the alien. What is it that you're saying, Mr. Dodo? Oh, put that away, brigadier. Your gun will do you no good. The brigadier fired. "'but the bullet never struck its target. "'He fired again and again and again, "'and each time the bullet landed with a harmless clink "'just outside the perimeter of the tripod's feet. "'The solid air,' I said, horrified. "'He's protected by the solid air, "'the same solid air he used when he brought us aboard.' "'As if in response, the tripod let out a colossal blast. "'It was muffled where we stood, "'but it knocked everyone on both sides of the river "'off their feet and shattered windows all up and down the Thames. "'Waves thundered out from the centre of the tripod.' Several more yards of London Bridge tumbled into the river. That was just a warning klaxon, Brigadier. I assure you that were I to unleash the full power of the tripod's weaponry, I could reduce London to a smouldering crater in seconds. He folded two of his arms. Trusting, gullible humans, he said, pacing and grinning. You gave me all I needed to plant our most glorious weapon of conquest in the heart of your greatest city. Now it's Beacon's call to its masters. They will be here in hours, the legendary Alexilarian Peregnum, to find their poor, pitiful lost wanderer and bring him home, and to seize the planet he has discovered at the outskirts of the galaxy with its precious cargo of over 1.7 billion slaves, as well as its fuel, its mineral wealth, its habitats, and its water. He grinned lasciviously. I have effectively become a one-soldier invasion force, he crowed. There will be glory in abundance, a promotion, a commission. I shall be pampered officer far from the front lines, and all I had to do was fool a handful of primitives. I rushed at him, but he pulled the same tool from its holster as it used to activate our showers. Held more menacingly, it looked enough like a pistol that I stopped. 
Uh-uh, human, that's close enough. This bathed you last time. I assure you that on this setting, it will strip the skin from your bones. Everyone keep back, I said, backing off. Everyone keep back until I think of something. Haven't you done quite enough? said the brigadier. Yes, I think he's done enough, said Dodo. More than I could have hoped for, in fact. To be able to pilot the tripod, and with such skill and precision, why, Benchley and Banyan have proven the most able associates in this mission. Except you forgot one thing, called Billy from the riverbank. He placed his paws together as if in prayer. Dodo looked at him curiously, and then his face collapsed. No, he whispered. No, that's not fair. Billy drew his hands apart. He was holding Benchley's wand. He gave it a little flick. The tripod lifted his head slightly. The crowd backed away, frightened. Sorry about your wand, said Billy. Don't worry, said Benchley. I have hundreds. Billy flicked Benchley's wand into the Thames. As soon as the wand touched the surface of the water, the tripod reached for it with its long prehensile trunk. The water reached up in response as the Thames roared from its riverbed high over London Bridge. The tripod plunged its trunk into the wave. No, cried Dodo. No, you mustn't. He aimed the toy gun again, but the tripod's shielding had dissipated so that it could reach for the water. The spray on our faces told us that much. A hundred guns trained on Dodo's head, and he dropped the plastic gun in a panic. No, please, he cried. I don't belong here. Let me go with it. I promise I shan't return. Please. The tripod must have gotten hold of the wand, for it abruptly rose from the Thames. Its legs folded under it, and its tentacle, the wand held firmly in place, retracted back into its body. A warm glow suffused under it, and with a single thud that echoed the length and breadth of London, it rose into the air and disappeared into the night sky. Where'd you send it? I said, as Dodo fell gibbering to the ground. Mars, called Billy, folding his arms triumphantly. Then if the relaxing parrots come looking for it, they'll find it unmanned on an uninhabited planet. It should bring us no more mischief. You're nicked, said the brigadier, taking the alien by one of its arms. I gambled for a billion and lost, said Dodo, looking hopeless and helpless. My people, my planet, I shall never see them again. What shall I do? Spend the rest of your natural life in the Tower of London, I said, unless you're prepared to be cooperative. Unfortunately, it is not for us to decide your fate. Only law can do that, and law must decide how to punish you for making war on England. Banyan, cried Dodo. Banyan, you have been my friend. You have been kind. You won't let them hurt me, will you? Banyan, I have seen the error of my ways. I repent. I should be a good English citizen, I swear. His voice was fading as the ever-efficient British bobbies swept in and dragged him off. Banyan, please. I only acted as I did because I was afraid. You understand, don't you? Banyan! I nodded. Yes. I said quietly. I understand. Well, that was very much the end of the tale. Once it was determined that Dodo had no further tricks up his sleeves, and the royal astronomers assured us that the tripod was, in fact, on its way to uninhabited and uninhabitable Mars, the poor alien was led off to prison where it was hoped he could eventually be rehabilitated into society. And yes, we were able to meet the Queen. The waning days of Her Royal Highness and the House of Hanover were upon us, and Queen Victoria was but a small woman. Yet as we knelt before her, she remained aware that she was bestowing not merely a national honour, but an historic one. She stood before Billy, who was fiercely trying to concentrate on a spot of carpet. I dub thee, she said, Sir William of Wetnock. 
With that stroke of a sword she wrote history large, for werewolves were not until that moment considered citizens of the British Empire, nor were they eligible for the honours and orders of British citizenship. Yet when it was learned that a werewolf had saved not merely London, but quite possibly the whole world, the Prime Minister could hardly refuse. It's my understanding that she was ill the day she conferred the gifts of a grateful empire, and thus did not stay for the banquet afterwards, where, I'm quite pleased to say, Sir William was a perfect gentleman, who ensured that Stocky also minded his management, much to the astonishment, not to say chagrin, of some of the other assembled nobility. Afterwards, well fed and well rewarded, we repaired to the brownstone, where we pledged to put Benchley up for the night, before taking a morning train to Cambridge, where we would be able to recover my automobile. "'You realise,' said Billy, examining his medal and enjoying a bottle of wine, "'that this puts us in direct service to the Crown. "'When it comes to the use of magic or magical studies, "'we are to be the consultants.' "'I do,' I said. "'And the Crown hasn't had a ministry-level magician since before the Interregnum.' "'Is that a fact?' I said. "'It is. "'The Crown has depended on private services like our own "'for interaction with magic users.' There's a great deal of money to be made by those whose services have attracted the favour of the crown. He sipped his wine. Although there is also a great deal more work. I speculated. More money, I said. Indeed. Give me the bottle. He handed me the bottle. I handed it back to him nearly empty. Then I went to bed. And that concludes the reading of The Walking Mountain and the March episode of the BDB podcast. Don't forget, Fang Volume 5 is accepting submissions until April 14th of this year. That's one month. Submissions instructions are available at baddogbooks.com. If you have any further questions, don't hesitate to drop a line at baddogbooks at gmail.com. Join us again in April when I'll talk you through something we like to call free press and ravish your ears with a brand new story. Thank you for listening. I'm Alex Vance, and this is Bad Dog Books. La donna è mobile, qual piume al vento, muta d'accento e di pensiero. Siempre un amabile, lei adro viso, in bianto e liso, e menzognero. La donna è mobile, qual piume al vento, muta d'accento e di pensier. Oh.